Greetings, A.P. Lang. I'm going to read to you today some excerpts from a book called The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, Native America from 1890 to the Present, written by David Truer. Prologue. This book tells the story of what Indians in the United States have been up to in the 128 years that have elapsed since the 1890 massacre of at least 150 Lakota Sioux at Wounded Knee Creek in South Dakota. What we've done, what's happened to us, what our lives have been like. It's adamantly, unashamedly about Indian life rather than Indian death. That we even have lives, that Indians have been living in, have been shaped by, and in turn have shaped the modern world is news to most people. The usual story told about us, or rather about the Indian, is one of diminution and death, beginning an untrammeled freedom and communion with the earth and ending on reservations, which are seen as nothing more than basins of perpetual suffering. Wounded Knee has come to stand for much of that history. In the American imagination, and as a result in the written record, the massacre at Wounded Knee almost overnight assumed a significance far beyond the sheer number of lives lost. It became a touchstone of Indian suffering, a benchmark of American brutality, and a symbol of the end of American life, the end of the frontier, and the beginning of modern America. Wounded Knee, in other words, stands for an end and a beginning. What were the actual circumstances of this event that has taken on so much symbolic weight? In 1890, the Lakota were trying to make the best of a bad situation. Ever since the Battle of the Little Bighorn in 1876, the U.S. government had been trying to solve the Indian problem on the plains with a three-pronged approach, negotiation and starvation in addition to open war. Open war on its own had, been, had not been going too well. Led by Red Cloud, Crazy Horse, American Horse, Tin Bears, and Sitting Bull, the Plains Indians had won such decisive victories that they had forced the government to the treaty table not the other way around. This resulted in the second Treaty of Fort Laramie in 1868 and secured a large homeland for the Lakota in southwestern South Dakota and northern Nebraska. But the terms of the treaty were violated by the United States shortly thereafter when gold was discovered in the Black Hills. In response, the Lakota attempted to throw out the gold seekers and enforce the terms of the treaty. That is what led directly to the Battle of the Little Bighorn, where Custer and the 7th Cavalry were wiped out. During the final hours of the battle, the Lakota and Cheyenne dismounted, put away their guns, and killed the remaining cavalry with their war clubs and tomahawks in a ritual slaughter. Some Dakota women, armed with the jawbones of buffalo, were given the honor of dispatching the soldiers with a sharp blow behind the ear. After that route, the U.S. government switched tactics. Instead of confronting the Indians head-on, it encouraged widespread encroachment by settlers. One sees the same tactics in play at the West Bank today reneged on treaty promises of food and clothing, and funded the wholesale destruction of the once vast buffalo herds of the plains. The hides and bones were shipped east, the hides for use in industrial machine belts, decoration, blankets, and clothing, the bones and skulls for fertilizer in China. It is estimated that by the late 1870s, about 5,000 bison were being killed per day. Without the bison, the Lakota and other plains tribes could not hope to survive, at least not as they had been surviving, the reservations might have been designed as prisons, but now they became places of refuge. With the vast buffalo herds no more and hemmed in by a burgeoning white population of ranchers, hunters, railroad workers, prospectors, homesteaders, and soldiers, the Plains Indians did what many disenfranchised people have done when threatened on all sides. They turned to God. 
to a government that had long bemoaned the unwillingness of Indians to get with the program and assimilate, this might have been good news. The Indians, however, turned to God in the form of a ghost dance. The ghost dance religion initially manifested itself among the Paiute in Nevada, where it was promoted by an Indian named Jack Wilson, who later exclusively used his Paiute name, Waboka. The dance, the story goes, came to Wilson in a vision during a solar eclipse on January 1st, 1889. In his vision, he stood near God and looked down on Indian people in the afterlife while they hunted and played. God told Wilson he had to return home and tell his people to live in harmony with one another, to not drink or steal, to work hard, and to make peace with white people. This was a pretty big leap beyond the divine directives any Indians had claimed to receive in the past. And there was a payoff. If Indians lived lives of peace and worked hard and danced the ghost dance, they would find peace on earth, and they would be reunited with the spirits of their ancestors in the afterlife. He then goes on to retell the story about Wounded Knee that you all have already heard. I'm on page 10 now. This version of history remained largely unquestioned throughout World War I, the Great Depression, World War II, and the 1950s. But in the 1960s, because of Vietnam and the fight for civil rights, because of an increased focus on the environment and the effects of industrialization and consumerism, because of the newly current idea that, quote, the culture wasn't the only culture and a counterculture could exist, the story of, quote, the Indian surfaced with new intensity in the American consciousness. This new awareness focused on wounded knee and the challenge, quote, the Indian posed to the very idea of America was epitomized by a highly influential book. Published in 1970, 80 years after the massacre, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee appeared as scenes of Indian activism were playing out on TV screens across the country, and at a time when many Americans were looking for some other way of being. The book was an enormous success. To date, it has sold more than 4 million copies and has been published in 17 languages. It has never gone out of print. The book made big claims about the importance of Indians in and of ourselves and to the rest of America. The quote, greatest concentration of recorded experience and observation, end quote, of Indian lives and history, wrote D. Brown in the opening pages, quote, came out of the 30-year span between 1860 and 1890. It was an incredible era of violence, greed, audacity, sentimentality, undirected exuberance, and an almost reverential attitude toward the ideal of personal freedom for those who already had it. During that time, the culture and civilization of the American Indian was destroyed, end quote. Beneath the effort to point a finger back east, to speak truth to power, however, Brown's narrative relied on and revived the same old sad story of the, quote, dead Indian. Our history and our continued existence came down to a list of the tragedies we had somehow outlived without really living, without civilization, without culture, without a set of selves. As for present-day Native life, Brown wrote only, quote, if the readers of this book should ever chance to see the poverty, the hopelessness, and the squalor of a modern-day Indian reservation, they may find it possible to truly understand the reasons why." End quote. I remember vividly reading that passage while in college in 1991, and I was doubly dismayed by Brown's telling. I was far from home on a distant coast. I was homesick for the North Woods, for my reservation, for the only place on earth I truly loved. I was only just beginning to understand what it was I was missing, and it wasn't squalor and hopelessness and poverty. This book is, in part, an attempt to communicate what it was that I loved. 
I was also dismayed because I felt so insignificant in the face of the authority and power with which Brown explained us Indians to the world. He had hundreds of years of history behind him, the most powerful and lucid cultural myths of America as evidence, and a command of English I could only dream of. All I had was the small hot point of hope that I mattered, that where I was from mattered, and that someday I would be able to explain to myself and to others why. This book is a counter-narrative to the story that has been told about us, but it is something more as well. It is an attempt to confront the ways we Indians ourselves understand our place in the world, our self-regard, the vision and versions we hold of who we are and what we mean matters greatly. We carry within us stories of our origins and ideas about what our families, clans, and communities mean. Sadly, these narratives do not always, or even mostly, stand in opposition to the ways in which we are read by outsiders. We often, too often, agree with accounts of our own demise. <clears throat> For many years, too many years, I understood my reservation, Leech Lake Reservation in northern Minnesota, only as a place of abject suffering, a quote, nowhere place, where nothing happened and good ideas went to die. I saw it as in America, but not of America. I saw myself and my tribe as a ruined people whose greatness lay behind us. The evidence seemed to be all around me. A brilliant uncle, the smartest man I ever knew, said my mother, was perpetually stoned and eventually died of an overdose. Another uncle was shot twice in the chest after firing an arrow through the open window of a police cruiser. A cousin was hit by an RV and another cousin was so thoroughly shot up by the cops that his body leaked inside through the unstopped holes when I was asked to shift it in the coffin at his funeral. Our tribal chairman was investigated for robbing our casino at gunpoint before his election. He was never charged. The first Indian elected to the state legislature was charged with theft and fraud and convicted. All this misbehavior, all this loss, all this drama was refracted by the attitudes I heard expressed around me. <clears throat> On a field trip to the state capitol during a protest, my high school band teacher muttered to the class, that all Indians were on welfare and we should go back to Canada where we came from. A high school friend told me that her parents, who owned property in a nearby town, wouldn't rent to Indians because we were dirty and dangerous. I protested weakly that I wasn't dirty, I wasn't dangerous. Oh well, you're not really Indian, she said. To be really Indian, evidently, was to be those things. My best friend's mother told him that the only reason I'd gotten to Princeton and he hadn't was that I was in an Indian. <clears throat> and when I was young and desperate to matter, desperate at least to be related to someone who mattered, I asked my mother if there was anyone famous in our family. Infamous, maybe, she said, but famous? She laughed. We've got bootleggers and safe crackers and convicts in our family, but no one famous for anything good. By the time I graduated from high school, I was ready to leave the reservation and never come back. In my mind, nothing good came from or of my Indian life and I was exhausted by all its drama and trauma. <clears throat> I was tired of the poverty and the dusty roads that no one saw fit to pave. I was sick of the late night calls and the trips to the hospital to witness the damage we were doing to ourselves. I looked ahead to the green leafy excellence of Princeton, to a future as a composer and Olympic fencer. Nothing was clearer to me than the conviction that my past lay behind me on the reservation and my future awaited me beyond our borders in America. So I left. As soon as I was gone, I missed it. I missed what I hadn't known was my Indian life, our collective Indian life. 
I miss the Mississippi, which flows through my reservation as a tiny thing, little more than a stream I could walk across. I miss the ways the pines scratch the window screens at night. I missed my Uncle Davy's antics, and I missed his love, and I missed how he loved me, completely without judgment, without measure, without censure. I missed the Memorial Day gatherings at the Benna Cemetery with my aunt and uncles and cousins, the sandwiches of canned ham mixed with Miracle Whip and relish on white dinner rolls. The yearning for home was rooted in nostalgia, but I was also trying to grow beyond it, toward a place approaching true knowledge. As kids do when they leave home, I began to see my parents more clearly. I saw how my mother, born into the meanest of circumstances, had gone to nursing school and then to law school and then quietly without self-promotion, had returned to the reservation to practice law a block from the high school that she had not thought, that had not thought much of the wiry Indian girl she had been. She represented all sorts of Indians for all sorts of reasons, divorce, DUI, theft. Indians had been appearing in court for centuries, but for most of my mother's clients, it was the first time they had shown up in court with an Indian lawyer by their side, arguing for dignity, for fairness, for justice. I saw too how my father, who was Jewish and had just barely survived the Holocaust, had adopted the reservation as his home and had adopted our causes as his own. I asked him about that. I asked him how he had come to feel so comfortable on the reservation. I was a refugee. I was an outsider. I was told throughout my life I wasn't enough. I wasn't good enough. I didn't belong. When I came here, I felt at home. I felt like people understood me, he said. He taught high school on the reservation and then worked for the tribe. And when I was in high school, he worked at Red Lake Reservation, where he had helped get the high school bonded and built in a way that made the tribe proud of their own accomplishments. I learned about my parents from unlikely sources. One summer, when I picked up a woman I was dating from her aunt's house on the reservation, she told me her aunt wanted me to say hi to her father for her. Evidently, on Saturday afternoons back in the 1950s, my father would drive to the small village where she lived and pick up all the Indian kids hanging out there and drop them off in Bemidji, where there was far more for them to do, then pick them up later when he was done in town and drive them home. He was the only white man who ever even thought about us and went out of his way to give us something to do, something to look forward to, the aunt had said. I also started in my own haphazard way to think about our collective Indian past and present and how the story of it was told. I decided on anthropology as my undergraduate major, a choice complicated by the way the discipline had created itself partly in relation to, and often at the expense of, indigenous people around the world. In the 1980s and 90s, anthropology was reckoning with its colonial past, interrogating itself and its past practices, and that reflexive and self-appraising turn felt right to me. Anthropology was also a great place to have arguments, and for better or for worse, I loved having arguments. One of my professors noted that in America you have arguments with other people, but in Britain you could make an argument by yourself. I quit that in anthropology you could do both. Around that time I launched my life as a fiction writer, and that too I was oppositional. Through it all, I came to see we Indians often get ourselves wrong. My lack of regard for my own origins and those of my community began to trouble me and troubles me still. If I could not see myself and my homelands differently from how many non-Indians do, more expansively, more intimately, more deeply, then how could I hope that the future of my people in the broadest sense would be any different from the story we kept being told and kept telling ourselves? One of the mantras of the women's liberation movement in the 1970s was, quote, the personal is political, end quote. This is undoubtedly true, but the political is also personal. 
Many of us have lived bitter and difficult lives, and we have brought the ghost of our modern afterlife inside ourselves, where it sits judging us, shaping us, putting its fingers over our eyes so that all we can see, all we can feel, is that we were once great people, but are great no more, and that we are no longer capable of greatness. We may feel that Dee Brown was right. What we have now is not a civilization, not a culture, not even real selves, but rather a collection of conditions, poverty, squalor, hopelessness, and that these are the conditions in which we live and the state of our spirit. This too is a narrative that must be laid to rest. I came to conceive of a book that would dismantle the tale of our demise by way of a new story. This book would focus on the untold story of the past 128 years, making visible the broader and deeper currents of Indian life that have too long been obscured. It would explore the opposite thesis of Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. The year 1890 was not the end of us, our cultures, our civilizations. It was a cruel, low, painful point, yes, maybe even the lowest point since Europeans arrived in the New World, but a low point from which much of modern Indian and American life has emerged. To tell that story, I embarked on three journeys. I traveled back into the written record, back into our prehistory and up through the early days of colonial enterprise in North America and beyond, retracing and aiming to set straight the past made crooked by D. Brown and Simon Pokagan and L. Frank Baum and others, and also bringing in the efforts of other diligent, lesser-known chroniclers. I also spent the better part of four years traveling the country, Montana, Washington State, New Mexico, Arizona, California, New York, Florida, and everywhere in between. And as I traveled to Indian homelands across the country, researching and writing about a long history, I listened to Indian people telling me what they and their people had experienced, what they had done, what their lives meant to them. I did my best to pair their beautiful lives and beautiful struggles with a recorded past, to link them to the chain of cause and effect, action and response, thought and deed, that as our collective living history. Last, I also continued my inward journey and included it here. I could not in good conscience ask other Indian people to expose themselves in service to my project to trust me if I didn't take the same risks. I can't shake the knowledge, and this is perhaps the only place where my anthropological training and my culture actually meet and agree, that it is impossible to separate the teller from the telling, that whatever I say about Indian lives is a way of saying something about myself, and therefore that both I and the project would be best served if I looked back and in even if I didn't like what I saw. This book is a result of those journeys. As such, it is not a catalog of broken treaties and massacres and names and dates, of moments when things might have turned out differently. There are, of course, those things. This book is a history after all. But facts assume a different place in this narrative from that in previous histories, because the project of this book is to do more than bend the broad lines of narrative true. It also tries to trace the stories of ordinary Indian people whose lives remind us of the richness and diversity of Indian life today, and whose words show us the complexity with which we Indians understand our own past, present, and future. So this book is a work of history, but it also includes journalism and reportage, and the deeply personal and deeply felt stories of Indians across the country, mine among them. This book is written out of the simple, fierce conviction that our cultures are not dead and our civilizations have not been destroyed, it is written with the understanding that our present tense is evolving as rapidly and creatively as everyone else's. In a sense, it is a selfish project. I want, I need, to see Indian life as more than a legacy of loss and pain, because I want to pass on to my beautiful children a rich heritage and an embracing vision of who we were and who we are. But I have not allowed myself to conjure alternative, 
hopeful but false realities out of the desire to make up for a traumatic past or imagine a better future. Looking at what actually was and is beyond the blinders that the, quote, dead Indian narrative has imposed means reckoning with relentless attacks on our sovereignty and the suffering it has created. But it also brings into view the indigenous and resourceful counterattacks we have mounted over the decades in resistance to the lives the state would have us live. It has allowed me to trace the many varied paths Indians have forged where old ones have been closed off or obscured. As Karl Marx wrote at the beginning of the 18th premier of Louis Bonaparte, men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. The tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living, end quote. This book is about the history we've made, and the tools with which we've made it. Indians are not little ghosts in living color, stippling the landscape of the past and popping up in the present only to admonish contemporary Americans to behave. To treat the lives lost on that cold South Dakota day in 1890 as merely symbolic is to disrespect those lives. It is also to disrespect the more than 200 Lakota who survived Wounded Knee and lived on to experience the pain of loss. Yes, but much else as well. They survived to live and grow, to get married and have babies. They survived to hold on to their Lakota ways or to convert to Christianity and let those ways recede. They survived to settle on the Red Reservation and later to move to cities. They survived to go to school and to college and to work. They survived to make mistakes and recover from them. They survived to make history, to make meaning, to make life. This book is about them. And it is about the Indians of other communities and tribes around the country who survived their own holocausts and went on to make their own lives and their own histories, and in so doing, to make and remake the story of the country itself.